Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. I hope you're doing all right wherever you are. And I have an excellent episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Watch the show on The Other People YouTube channel. And if you enjoy the program, you can support it at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. I also do a once-a-week email newsletter. It is free. You can sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. So my guest today is Alejandra Oliva, author of a new book called Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration. And that is the work that I hope this book does on a policy level, is to be like, hey, this is not working. I can imagine better things. I am also not like a policy genius. And so I think that the work that lies ahead of us, we don't have to know exactly where we're going to at least start doing the work. I think that we can start imagining a better future and working towards that without knowing exactly what those details are. All right, folks, that was Alejandra Oliva. Her new book is called Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration, out this week on Astra House. Alejandra Oliva is a Mexican-American translator and immigrant justice activist. She is also a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. And in this new book, Rivermouth, she brings readers into a bracing, at times harrowing, and deeply moving exploration of the modern immigration crisis in America. And really, it's a crisis that extends all around the world at this point. In Rivermouth, we are dealing with what I would call a hybrid work of literature, part memoir, part spiritual meditation, part polemic, part family history, and more. Alejandra Oliva, has worked with asylum seekers since 2016. She has a personal perspective on the issues at hand in this book. Issues like, how do we measure who deserves American citizenship? What is the point of humanitarian aid organizations and systems that dole out aid 
if they do so on a conditional basis. And what do we owe to our most desperate fellow humans, the most destitute, the most disenfranchised? It should also be said that Alejandra Oliva is relentless in her interrogation of herself when it comes to these matters. She takes a close and painstaking look at her own blind spots and confusions and failures when it comes to this deeply human and very complicated subject matter. Alejandra Oliva is an essayist, a translator, a justice advocate, and an embroiderer. She is a recipient of the 2022 Creative Nonfiction Whiting Grant. Her writing has been included in Best American Travel Writing uh, in the year 2020, and she was nominated for a Pushcart Prize and was honored with an Aspen Summer Words Emerging Writers Fellowship. She was also the Frankie Fellow at the Yale Whitney Humanities Center back in 2022. This new book, Rivermouth, publishes this week on Astra House, and I'm very happy to have had the chance to meet Alejandra Oliva at this moment and to talk with her about her life and her experiences related to issues of immigration, asylum, spirituality, care, among other things. So let's do it. Let's get to today's conversation with Alejandra Oliva. Her new book, One More Time, is called Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration. I've always been like a writer, you know, I've got the four-year-old stapled together pieces of printer paper with uh, written and illustrated by Alejandro Leva on them. But um, when I got to high school, I got really interested in journalism and in the ways that journalism could change things. You know, I, I read All the President's Men. I read all these old school journalists changing the world and the country uh, narratives. And I was like, this seems really, really interesting and really, really cool and it's what I want to do when I'm older and so that's what I went into college for I was a political science and econ major which is not what I do now and I kind of realized by the end of my freshman year and after a C minus grade in uh, econ 101 that that was not going to be something that I was good at or that I particularly enjoyed. And so I ended up taking a bunch of classes my second year of college to try and figure out what was more interesting or more exciting to me. And so I ended up in creative writing nonfiction and in sociology because I realized that the thing that was interesting to me about political journalism and that was so fascinating to me about that was actually how policies and how politics affected people. And sociology felt like a way where you could spend a lot of time with people and see how they were living, talk to them about what they felt their lives were like, and then also look at them just sort of like living and see how your observations matched up to that or didn't. And it was kind of through that major that I, or that combination of majors that I was like, feels like a really interesting way to approach the world that isn't quite journalism, but isn't quite pure sociology either. And so that's kind of, I feel like some of the foundational things that influence the way that I write and what I choose to write about. And now you're at Harvard Divinity, or at least you were. I was. Yeah, that's where I got my master's. Okay. So Divinity School. That's always like kind of fascinated me. 
as I didn't even know that was an option. I don't think I even knew that such a thing existed when I was in college. But what drew you to divinity school? So my senior thesis project in undergrad was a a mix of an ethnography and an interview project with a bunch of women whose church had closed in East Harlem. And every week they would meet outside of this church, Our Lady Queen of Angels, and hold sort of like this alternate meeting. And I had been raised super evangelical, not Catholic, Protestant, but like very evangelical in Texas. You can imagine sort of the the vibe of churches that I was going to as a kid. And I was really not a fan of that. I was really resistant. I was really not into it. And so meeting these women, seeing the kind of community that they'd created for themselves, seeing the way that they had been thinking about what church was or what church could be and what especially the Catholic church owed to them as longtime parishioners, as members of the city, as as poor women of color was really, really interesting. And something that I started thinking about, I started thinking about faith and religion a lot more. And I finished that project. I started working in the publishing industry. I had a couple jobs that I did not love working in publishing. And in the middle of that, I was doing social media for a publisher and somebody like DM'd me this article that they had written um, about authors who were at Harvard Divinity. And I was like, the article was just like, a theological education can be a really interesting and important part of an author's life. And it was people like C.E. Morgan and Robin Costlewa. And I was like, that does sound really interesting. And I'd already been playing around with the idea of going to grad school, but getting an MFA. And I had a friend who was miserable getting his MFA. And I was like, this seems like a really interesting place where I can sort of pick at the scab of the way that I was raised religiously and also think about writing and think about morality and goodness and uh, all of these other really interesting sort of crunchy things at the same time and in the same place and and write about them. And that's what Div School ended up doing for me, honestly. So you liked it? I really did. I think it sounds fantastic, and I think it sounds like the kind of education that we don't get enough of, uh, maybe in particular as writers, like the big questions, grappling with issues of morality, what it means to be a good human being. I think all of that stuff can be very useful and can find its way into literature. It maybe should find its way into literature more often or I don't know. I envy that education. I think it sounds fantastic. And I think that beginning by talking about your education all the way back to childhood and then through your master's degree is especially integral to the kind of work that you're doing in Rivermouth. Like it really, when I read that and learned that about you and started to put the pieces together, I was like, oh, wow, you can really see how Alejandra formed uh, creatively, at least for this project. Yeah, it really... Every time I talk about it, I end up talking about all of these different things that came together to form it. And it's it's so it feels not just like as an educational or like part of like my educational formation, but just even like my social formation, my family, all of it. It feels like it all sort of has come together into this book in a way. And like, I don't know that I could write like this could have been a book about 
anything else. And I think it would still be like, oh, yeah, these are the these are the same three things she's been chasing down forever. But it feels particularly a book born out of the things I've been up to for ever. <laughs> for sure. And Rivermouth is about immigration. Your parents are immigrants. And I think the way that you characterized it in the book at one point is that they are a feel-good immigration story, like in quotes. Yeah. So my parents came here a couple of years before I was born, and they came for my dad to get his PhD. And I don't know if this is totally clear in the book, but my dad already was a uh, U.S. citizen when they came over. His mother was an American citizen that transferred over when he was a kid, when he was born. And so he has citizenship. My mom was able to get a green card fairly easily. Like it was a compared to the stories of many of the people that I have seen and talked to in the years since then, their story was super, super easy, like minor bureaucracy of any immigration process, but nothing, nothing scary. And since then, you know, my dad has become a professor. He is working at a university in Texas. My mom is a homemaker. They have sent all three of their kids to college. My sister's about to start grad school. They have a house. Like it's just very, both a story of economic privilege going in and a story of that economic privilege, like being maintained and increased through their immigration. Yeah. I think that one of the things I admire so much about Rivermouth and one of the things that as a matter of craft occurred to me as I was reading it and as I was reflecting on other books that do something similar in that they take on a very difficult, complex, emotionally loaded, challenging topic like you're doing here with immigration. The way that I've noticed these kinds of books succeeding is that the author is not shy about implicating herself on the page and in the story and is very candid about the ways in which she is involved with these issues, has failed, is unsure, is confused, was wrong, you know, all these different things. In the absence of that kind of candor, it's hard to see how a book like this could work. Does that resonate with you at all? Like, you know, I know that's what you did on the page, so I think it uh, has to resonate in that sense. But I'm I'm wondering about like the creative process of putting this book together. Was that something that was just there from the jump and you always sort of instinctively knew that it was going to be this? Or was it something that you had to arrive at as you realized that it was necessary for the book to work? I think it was something that was very present, even from the beginning of writing this book. It is through being Latina, through being the first generation daughter of immigrants, people have always sort of assumed things about me, about my family, about where we came from, about what our story is. And a lot of it looks a lot more, a lot of those assumptions track much more closely on to stories of lack of privilege or stories of hardship. And it felt really, really important to me as I was setting out to talk about this, to be like, that is not my story. The way that I am relating to these people, the way that I am coming into community with them is very, very different from someone who shares 
a hundred percent of experiences i would go so far to say that like we don't like i'm not an immigrant myself we don't actually share that many experiences and this is the place that i am coming from and where i am standing from telling this story and the ways that i am both implicated and a part of the system that i am telling you is horrific and bad and needs to be abolished and also standing in solidarity with the folks that i'm talking to and that that are coming alive on the page i hope and sort of explaining this like in between place that i have found myself standing in and that felt really important from a moral point of view. Like I felt like I couldn't get people truthfully and honestly on my side if I wasn't telling that full story completely. And I felt like I needed to explain exactly where I was standing, exactly the point of view that I was telling this narrative from so that people would know, you know, along with me discovering the blind spots that I have, discovering the... The places where even I, who like sort of thought that I knew what I was talking about, or I was like, I know what immigration is, the places where that became increasingly obvious that that isn't true. Yeah. No, I mean, I think like I feel in reading your book, like I'm, I'm being led through this material by an honest human being. It doesn't feel like, like these lessons that you're learning or the opinions that you're delivering, because you do have opinions. It's not like you're just in a state of, neutrality or living in this kind of gray area um you know you're coming through this experience with some pretty strong opinions but they feel earned and you know i think for readers or people out there listening who might be wondering what kind of book it is i think it's important to underline that yeah it's definitely not a neutral like here's what's happening it's not journalism or sociology in that sense it's and i think it's it's very difficult, even as a journalist or a sociologist, to experience just seeing situations, scenarios like on the border or to talk to people who are have been in detention, people who are, you know, trying to survive and encountering all these obstacles. I think it's difficult to actually go through that and not come away with an opinion. And so for me, the opinions that are in the book are really they're born often of experience. And they're also for the last several years, up until a few months ago, I've been working at an immigration nonprofit, the National Immigrant Justice Center, and working with them and especially their policy team helped me like get this view of immigration and the issues that we raise when we talk about immigration that isn't just human, but is kind of zooming out a little bit more and talking about, you know, what are actual policy changes that we could make to make the situation better? How do we zoom out a little bit from the human while still maintaining that like the unit of thing that we care about in this situation is individual human beings? Like how do we, what do policies look like that can make life easier and better for individual human beings. Well, this book, in addition to being about immigration, is very much about translation and about language. And it's right there in the title. So for people listening, what does it mean to be river-mouthed? So to be river-mouthed is, when I was writing a lot of the river sections of the book, I was thinking a lot about River Deltas, especially, which is this place 
where fresh water meets salt water and it's kind of sloshing back and forth across this like imaginary hard line between the two and especially if you look at the Rio Grande the Rio Bravo what you see is that it's this it's like this hard line it's this border theoretically that exists but this incredible artist Nicole and Tabby created what's called a meander map for the river which is all the different ways that the river's flow pattern has changed over the last 100 200 years since people have been sort of mapping and plotting it and I think that thinking about being river mouthed is thinking about having these two these two sides of a coin or these two sides of something that are actually not divided as strongly as we think they are and whose connection and interrelationship is a little more complicated than we give it credit for so the relationship between english and spanish the relationship between the us and mexico those are all things that kind of illustrate to me what it means to be river mouthed well, a couple of things. I heard you say Rio Grande, and then you said Rio Bravo, right? And so that right there is a kind of small illustration of the connection and the closeness and the way that language, uh, you know, can factor into our understanding of the same thing. Like to Americans, it's the Rio Grande. To Mexicans, it's the Rio Bravo. Uh, wasn't I want to say the river prior to being, you know, drawn upon for agriculture used to be a lot rougher. It used to be a lot tougher to cross, right? I think so. Yeah, I ended up reading this last year like a history of the river that was written in the mid century. I am not. I think it's called the Great River. I don't remember the author right now, but it's this like tome of sort of Texas Mexico history, New Mexico history that is. It was written in the mid-century, so it definitely has its issues, but it's this just super incredible historical narrative through all of the different ways that the river has served as transportation. The river used to be navigable. I don't think it actually is anymore. And I mean, even now, during certain points of the year, it's not necessarily navigable, but it can be very, very dangerous to cross sort of on your own. People drown in that river all the time. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty, And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So the other thing that you mentioned was the river section of the book. And I just want to make sure that listeners are oriented 
uh, to the book's structure. It is broken up into three parts. Part one is the aforementioned river section. I believe it's titled Caminante No Hay Camino, which is a mm-hmm. reference to the Anthony Machado poem. Yes. Part two is called Sobre Mesa, which means, that means on the table, right? Yeah, it means on the table or kind of over the table. It's a little of both. Okay. So river, I sort of get. I think listeners can glean that pretty easily in terms of its relationship to immigration at the border, people crossing the river. But sobre mesa, uh, over the table, on the table, what does that mean? Yeah. So the idea of sobre mesa is this sort of diffuse area of time where you have finished eating. It's not like dinner anymore, but you're all still kind of hanging around People are drinking, people are chatting, people have brought things to the table to do. Uh, my mom paints usually after dinner. Um, she can bring her watercolor. She'll like, and it's just that time that you kind of spend hanging out after a meal where you're not really eating, but nobody's like getting up and doing the dishes. Nobody's like, well, we need to go. We need to move on to the next thing. And so it's this really diffuse, relaxed space where it's not really formal. There's no real rules. And the reason that section two is called that is because on the kind of immigration side, it focuses on my experiences doing interpretation for folks who were trying to fill out asylum applications, which were was done sort of huddled around tables in this church basement in New York. And just sort of this really structured, rule-bound conversation that we needed to have to adhere to this form and all of these different ways that we needed to sort of get things into this particular, the way we were taking people's stories and chopping them up and translating them and, and turning them into the kind of story that the form demands. And then between that and long, long history of immigration and our food ways, especially here in the U.S. I cover, you know, the history of the United Fruit Company in Central America and the way that their land holdings, it's a U.S. corporation, they owned a bunch of land, fomented revolutions, was really involved in the CIA, like super sketchy business. I believe I talk about avocados and the way that they are implicated in the drug trade and all of these different ways that the United States has been extractionist, especially in regards to our food, of the resources and labor that come from Central America. And thinking about all of that coming together at a table, whether it's a table where people are sharing their stories and, you know, being forced to talk about the trauma that they've gone through in order to get help. And also, you know, the ways that the food that we eat every day and the these things that we just sort of offhandedly consume are really heavily implicated in histories of immigration and abuse and displacement of people. And we don't really think about that. Okay. So that's Sobre Mesa. That's part two of the book. Part three is called El Azote. Is that right? El Azote? Is that the right pronunciation? Okay. And that means wall. So the wall, I think, you know, most Americans, most people have some frame of reference there. And I mean, it's, it's just Trump's wall, right? There's nothing else. I mean, I guess there are other kinds of walls that you could... Yeah, it's a little bit the Trump's wall and then a little bit the walls of an immigration detention center, which honestly 
have very, very similar functions and sort of symbolic meanings as well. Just keeping people in, keeping people out and and drawing very clear lines in between what kind of person is allowed and what kind of person isn't. Okay. So you work, uh, and forgive me, what, what is the name of the organization you mentioned earlier that you work for? Uh, I have, I'm not working there anymore as of like a couple weeks ago, but uh, the National Immigrant Justice Center. Okay. So you've been working for immigration nonprofits. This book is very much about work that you did down at the border in Tijuana. It is about uh, work that you've done in prisons. It's about obviously a reflection on your personal history with uh, immigration. It's kind of a spiritual personal history. It is all of these things. And I have to go back to what we talked about in the beginning, which is your childhood interest in journalism and politics and these authors who to you seem to be changing the world and how that writing really moved you and inspired you to want to do something similar, to write something that could change the world. And, you know, that's a very idealistic, but very, I think, noble and sweet ambition. And I think it's easy for people who are in the trenches as writers trying to sell books and make a living to kind of chuckle, you know, as we're doing right now, like, oh God, a book to yeah. change the world. Like, I just want a book that like gets 10,000 readers or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> but we say that and we, we sort of make that joke at the same time, a book did change your life. And I want us to be sure to discuss Valeria Luiselli's book, Tell Me How It Ends, because this was pivotal for you, right? Yeah, so I first read this book in Spanish. It, I think it it has a kind of complicated publication history in that it was a first an essay in English, uh, I think in Friends Magazine, and then became a book that came out in Spanish. And then in like January of 2016, if not December of 2015, and then it came out in English, I think in March of 2016. So I read it a little bit before the American public did in Spanish. I'd gone to visit my grandmother for Christmas and I was like, I'm pretty sure this book is out here. I would like to get it. And so I managed to get my hands on a copy. And it was, you know, January of 2016 was a very particular time in political history. It was a very particular time in sort of the history of a person living in New York City, which is to say that everything was really tense and really weird. And, you know, there were all those post-it notes in the subway and it just felt, everything felt really loaded. And like, everyone was like, we're doing good work. We're resisting. But like, nobody actually could say what that looked like or what that meant. Or a lot of the people that I was talking to weren't. So wait, and, and let me interrupt here. This was January 2016 yeah. or 2017? 2017. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was yeah, just going to say okay. this was, this was after sorry. Trump had been elected. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. it was, Trump I think had been elected. It was right. the inauguration. That was the time. Sorry. I got those years mixed up. Um, no, it's easy. It's easy to do. Cause the election was 16, but like, I, you yeah. know, just so people understand. So there's all of that, you know, in a city as blue as New York and in a city that knows the menace of Trump and as intimately as New York does, <laughs> it had to be yeah. a, a particularly heated uh, and 
what's the word? Like you said, it was kind of, uh, people were tense and these notes on the subway, what does that mean? Or post-it notes on subways? Um, so my commute led me through Union Square and this was like a huge deal at the time. People were like writing post-it notes and putting them up being like resist and fuck Trump. And it was like this very, it got a lot of like media attention for being this like very visible sign of resistance, but also like it was a bunch of post-it notes that cost three dollars at a at the walgreens you know uh, just outside the subway station and took no effort to put up and very little effort to take down as well and so it was just to me those post-it notes were like the absolute sign of like empty action in the face of worry and right right (laughs) i don't mean that i don't (laughs) sorry go ahead I was just going to, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, uh, like, this is not a funny book, uh, which is not a criticism. It's just a fact. It's hard to write a book about <laughs> no, immigration. It's not. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a laugh riot, but there is one, one thing that consistently made me laugh in this book was you, uh, you know, sort of calling out this phrase, don't look away, which anybody yeah. who has spent like five minutes on social media, or at least back in those days, especially, where someone will post some horrible video and be like, don't look away. <laughs> Just like, you know, I don't know. It made me like in a grim yeah, kind it's of like, dark. What does, yeah. what does looking actually do? You need to, you need to follow that up in some way. And so that was kind of where I was as I was reading this book. And as I was sort of starting, it was really starting to actually sink in what a Trump presidency would look like and what it would mean for people that I knew and loved. And I think that we were not really, I mean, like at no point were we prepared for any of the stuff that started happening, but I was just kind of in the middle of this, like, okay, well, post-it notes is not it, but what is it? And reading Louis Ellie's book and the ways that she also, to some extent grapples with, you know, here I am. I'm a writer. I'm trying to get a green card along with my husband. I am taking this road trip to sort of wait that out. I'm I'm mad because I lost my immigration attorney when actually she's going to go help all of these unaccompanied minors and sort of her movement towards helping and towards volunteering and realizing that it was this thing that it was the fact of her being able to speak Spanish and it was the fact of her being able to, the fact of her being an immigrant herself that led her to be able to help and volunteer. And so it was kind of through that book that I was like, not only is there something that I can do and that I'm able to do, but like I have this very specific sort of skill set that I'm able to do. I have been trained as an interviewer. I have been I speak Spanish. I've done bilingual interviews before. And it was in reading that book that I was like, this is something that I can and I'm able to do. And then I had started calling around to places to see if anyone needed volunteers. I am sure that tons and tons and tons of places were really inundated with with phone calls around that time. And so uh, a couple weeks later, a friend came to me and was like, hey, we are looking for Spanish language interpreters to help people fill out their asylum applications with this organization that I've been volunteering with. Are you interested? And I said, yes, immediately. Like I, and it was thanks to the book that I, I don't, 
I don't want to say that I knew what to expect because it's always very different to be faced with someone's real story sitting in front of you than than reading it in a book. But I knew that this was an area of of needing to get involved. And I that book was the thing that really like got me out of my chair and got me moving. And so I think that in writing the book, I was like, even if this makes one person be like, oh, there is something that I can contribute to this situation or another situation that is happening in my neighborhood, in my area, if if there is any way that I can like reach out to people that I normally wouldn't have contact with, then like that to me is not changing the world, but like that the book will have been doing what I wanted it to do. Sure. And I mean, I just love the, I love the fact that books can change a person's life. Like this is an illustration of it. it. It's like one person at a time, one reader at a time reading this book like you said, got you out of your chair and into the streets. And you said as well in the book that, you know, you were in divinity school and you felt, and I'm going to quote you here, something close to a calling to go to Tijuana and help at the border. I guess this is related to the reading of Lewis Ellie's book. Was there something else? Did you have some other experience or set of experiences that had you feeling this way? Yeah, so um, at the time I was taking a class called, I believe, Christian Lives, and it was a bunch of spiritual biographies. And we had just finished reading Oscar Romero, who is, well, St. Oscar Romero now, who is a Salvadoran archbishop who became archbishop during the war and sort of the thing that made him a saint in addition to like the miracles and stuff. But the thing that really makes him notable is that during the war, you know, people were being killed. There were death squads. There were, there was also all this secrecy around people being disappeared, people just like a lot of secrecy and darkness. And his sort of thing that he did as an archbishop, he called, he did the things that an archbishop should do. He called for peace. He read the names of the dead. He talked about forgiveness and, preached reconciliation in a way that I think was really challenging, but was also really necessary. And he was assassinated. And this is not to compare myself to Oscar Romero in any way. But I think reading that and reading like the thing that this guy did that made him holy, the thing that this guy did that made a difference was doing his job, even when doing his job put him in danger, even when doing his job was challenging and difficult was like, okay, then what is my job here? What obligations do I have? What are the talents that I have that I can give to this situation? And I think it was sort of in that class sitting there that I was like, I think I have to do this. And I think that I have to find a way to make this happen. You were inspired. Yeah. Okay. Here's what I'm thinking. We uh, you know, in America, I think in particular, hold up as a virtue, ambition. It's a complicated term. It means different things mm-hmm. to different people. There are gender implications, all this different stuff. But I think we hold up as holy in America. The like Horatio Alger, like business success story, that kind of tycoon figure, the tech CEO of like this miraculous startup that disrupts society or whatever yeah <laughs> uh, we we hold up our actors and actresses and celebrities of all stripes 
as, you know, these things that we should aspire to. Why don't we aspire to be saints? Like you don't have to be religious. I mean, not in a self-aggrandizing way, but I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, wow, that says something that like, here you are inspired by the life, by the life of a saint and trying to emulate that path in some way and in, in, in a way that acknowledges, like you said, like I'm not comparing myself to this dude or, you know, but it, I think it's, I just think it's worth highlighting that, that you did that. Yeah. And it made me wonder why more people don't do that, including myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also recently read a biography of Dorothy Day, who is not a saint, but maybe should be one, although that's a little complicated, I think, because of her own feelings towards sainthood. But she was a woman who lived in New York, I want to say around from like the 20s to the 60s-ish. And she started the Catholic Worker Houses. She was like a Catholic anarchist socialist. She's very cool. And she was also just someone who was kind of going around living her life, was in like the bohemian crowd in New York City. And then suddenly this guy had heard of her and was like, hey, you need to start a newspaper for Catholics, like a radical Catholic newspaper, and you need to start a home for people who who don't have one. And she did that. And just she had been kind of slowly converting to Catholicism throughout her her young adult life. And then this happened and she just suddenly was like, yes, this is what I need to do. And she did it exceptionally while there are still Catholic worker houses around the country. And reading that, I was like, it is, it feels so rare for someone to just be like, oh, I can do this. I can suddenly pick up and start offering direct services. I can just suddenly pick up and like make this thing happen. And granted, real estate prices in New York City were such at a time where you were like, yeah, I want to start a, a I want to buy a building for people to live in. And you had to raise a thousand dollars and then suddenly you had a building on the Lower East Side. But uh, <laughs> it's still such an incredible story to me, just that somebody was like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then they do they do it. Yeah. See, people of action. And I think too, like there are these like sayings that you'll read where it's like, you know, if you act, like leap in the net will appear. Or if, you know, like nature loves courage. Like if you're courageous and you leap out there and you kind of start doing the thing, then resources will follow. Other people will follow you and the thing will come together. I think there's some truth in that. And it's illustrated by people like these saints, you know, whether they're officially canonized or not. But, yeah, you know, there's another aspect to this impulse to go help that you, to your credit, are very honest about. And I'm going to quote you here. You get into the messy truth of why you felt this calling to go to Tijuana and to volunteer and to help at the border with translation and to get engaged in a on the ground way with these people and their lives and their struggles. And you say, quote, because that's the messy truth of it. I went to Tijuana for myself. I went because I wanted to be the kind of person who moved toward those in need, who showed up. I went because I wanted to prove to myself my own goodness. End quote. And like, see, that's what I'm talking about. That was where I'm leaning in as a reader and like feeling very grateful to you because that's a part of it, is it not? When people want to become like social activists and they want to fight for justice and all these things, 
I think that it's something that we can feel as observers. Like if you're coming into contact with somebody who's really engaged and an activist and is speaking out and is trying to rally people to a cause or is trying to do good work on the ground and is talking about it or something, there's this element of self-interest that I think people can sense in there, but that the person themselves who is doing the work isn't often willing to cop to. And I think it's important to acknowledge that layer of it because I think it it's not unique to you. I think it's something that is part of everyone's experience of doing this work if they're being truthful about it. No? Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, I, I come down kind of hard uh, in the book on these people who are like live streaming from Tijuana and being like, I'm here in the middle of it all helping people. And like, I come down pretty hard on them. But like, I also wrote a whole book about how I went down there and helped people. And like, that's, that's part of it. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think that they're it's like a tricky thing because so much of what activism is nowadays is like consciousness raising and being like, if more people just knew about it, then it would suddenly become better. And like, that's kind of true. Um, it is also kind of true that going and providing direct services is a really like emotionally charged, emotionally powerful thing that I think people know about and know is emotionally powerful but i don't think we talk about how how good that can make you feel or like if we do it's in this very like weird kind of mealy mouthed way of like i feel so good i give back to my community and like it also feels bad a lot of times because you can't fix every problem and i feel like Every time I've kind of reached out or gone out and been like, I'm going to make a difference today, what you end up with is this actually like very complicated, messy feeling of like, a person looked me in the eyes and said, thank you, because I like answered their question about whatever logistical thing or like, I was able to hand someone a sandwich when they were hungry. And that feels good. But it also involves like taking that half step back and being like, but everything is really, really fucked up and broken. And there is there is nothing that I as an individual can do about it. And I feel like it you need both of those things. And I this book is sort of like my attempt to be like, here is me doing this work and like a lot of the blurbs are also really like that blurbs which I'm hugely grateful for but like everyone's like she's there she's on the ground she's doing things uh one of the early reviews said something about like giving voice to the voiceless which yikes and like yes but also if you take even a half step out the other half of the book is like and I accomplished nothing while there. I like talked to a few people, but like it's still happening right now. Well, I think that uh, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking of the writer's strike. Because, you know, there's a line in the book, in your book, where you say the kinds of people who show up at the border or at sites of injustice are there to see, to document, to help, but also to star in the helping. So 
I love that line because I feel like that's kind of part of it, especially in the age of social media. And I don't mean to be cynical. I'm on the side of the writers, obviously, in the writer's strike. But just as like one prominent example, because I follow so many writers on social media, I can't help, maybe cynically, maybe too cynically, but sort of think to myself like, you know, yeah, they're wanting to raise awareness of the strike and to build support for the Guild and its arguments against the studios and all the rest that I'm in favor but I also feel like people, A, want you to know that they are in the guild. <laughs> like I have Writers Guild Health Insurance. I write for a TV show. Did you know that I'm in the cool club? I'm getting paid a lot of money to be, a t- or you know, at least a lot of money, comparatively speaking, to write for TV. And then secondly, it's wanting to star in the helping, right? Wanting to be, it's a way to get reciprocity on social. That's not all that it is, but those elements are in there. And I feel like your book is great for acknowledging those elements because in the absence of that acknowledgement it's only part of the story and i think that for you know grumpy people like me <laughs> it's like you're you're left there sitting you're left there with the book in your hands feeling a sense of dissatisfaction and i did not have to feel that with you because you're an honest broker so i appreciate it is what i'm trying to say thank you <laughs> um and you know i think that when we talk about the kind of work that you were doing down there and the kinds of thoughts and feelings that you were grappling with as you were trying to make some kind of positive difference, uh, another line from your book that I underlined, I still don't entirely know what it looks like to help selflessly. Like, you know, you're giving people a sandwich, you're helping people fill out forms, you're translating for people who need a translator and kind of helping to bridge the communication divide. But there's always some element of self-interest that you can detect within yourself. There's always some element of doubt as to whether or not you're actually being effective. You know, all of these things are sort of swirling. And then there are moments, I think, of genuine, I don't know if satisfaction is the right word, but a genuine sense of accomplishment, however small, you know, that you're being useful on behalf of people in need. It's all of that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that like I still don't totally know how to make sense of or how to think of and like the book is my best attempt at at pushing through but like there are some connections that I still have from my work that bring me a ton of joy and there are still there are like cases or people that I think about that I'm like, you know what, like that that turned out well and that feels really good. And like, I can't say that there's not a sense of self-satisfaction in there, but like it also matters a great deal to me that like this person had a good outcome and that they are living like full, happy, beautiful lives in the way that they had maybe imagined when they set out. And that, that feels like it, it's okay to be a little self-satisfied about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, listen, listen, you're waiting into like dark, I mean, I'm mixing metaphors here, wading into dark terrain. You know what I mean? You're like, this is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah. is <laughs> difficult. This is difficult work to do. And these are difficult human truths to be confronted with. And, you know, there is a term that I have read in another book. I don't know if it's empathy fatigue or burnout, empathetic burnout maybe is the way that it was phrased, but this is a risk when you are exposed to these traumas on a repeated basis and you're trying to be present for these people and be helpful to these people and to absorb their stories or translate their stories. Objectively speaking, it is a lot to process, right? 
Yeah, and the ways that I have been involved in direct services or the ways that I have come into into contact with folks who are needing the most or in in the worst places is usually has been for me in brief really concentrated spaces like I was in Tijuana for a little while I went to the detention center for a little while while I was volunteering to help people fill out asylum forms that was one day a week for a couple hours even in my job at the immigration nonprofit, like I would interview someone, you know, once a month, once every other while. And the rest of the time it was like, hey, can you, you know, format this post for the blog? Or like, will you create a series of graphics for this report that we're publishing? And like, yeah, no problem. Uh, this is not really something that requires a huge emotional load from me. And uh, Working in that way gives you time to recover, gives you time to do this kind of stepping back. And different experiences are going to leave you marked in different ways. Different conversations with people will will affect you in different ways. But there are a lot of like hard stories that I still carry around with me that really that shook me up. There have been times where things sort of pile up where suddenly, you know, I'm like, oh, my mental health is like strongly affected right now and I've been lucky and privileged enough to be able to step back when that's necessary and I think that that is quite honestly one of the things that made this book possible is that I like it is not a fire hose that is on all the time for me I have colleagues who are immigration attorneys people who are social workers don't always get to turn that fire hose off don't always get time to reflect because there's always somebody else there but I think that it's not really a a thing, a case of empathy fatigue as much as it is of like vicarious trauma and feeling all of these trauma responses like in your own body while also knowing at the same time that you're not actually going through anything traumatic on its face. You're just working closely with people who have and having those really complicated feelings. Yeah, it's like empathic trauma though, right? You're like, I didn't have this happen to me but I'm feeling it so intensely because you're a sensitive person and you're human. I mean, my God, you hear somebody, some of the stories that you hear, or a lot of the stories that you hear at the border are so harrowing. And this is another thing that the book does well, and it's important, is it gets into the human stories and the reasons why people immigrate, or at least a lot of the reasons why. And on a parallel track, you are parsing and dissecting and dismantling some of the ways in which the political class in the United States of America conceives of and couches issues related to immigration to their constituents, to the American public. You know, there is in the discourse among the political set in the United States, this notion in particular among right-wingers and nativists who are kind of anti-immigration, don't want people crossing into the country to build their lives or whatever it is, you know, they want to kind of shut it off. And they have this idea that there is the quote, right way to immigrate. And then there's the, the wrong way. And that's like some semantics that you do a nice job of sort of taking apart. And I think for listeners, it's worth talking about, you know, what the bulk of the people at the border 
are the, like why they are there. You know, obviously, yeah, they want a better life, but they're also often fleeing circumstances that are truly dangerous and traumatic for them. Yeah, absolutely. It really depends on someone's country of origin, sort of what they're fleeing from. And it also people's country of origin and like the the sort of ebbs and flows of different countries sending people changes a lot depending on what's going on. But while I was at the border and while I was doing interpretation work, the vast majority of the people that I was encountering were Central Americans, mostly from El Salvador and Honduras. And those folks are often fleeing really widespread gang violence. And I think when we think about gang violence, we think of like 90s Los Angeles, which is ironically enough where a lot of the gangs that are now really endemic to these countries began. These were folks that fled the Civil War, were put into or lived in really gang-heavy neighborhoods in LA, formed gangs for their own protection themselves, and then were deported back to these countries for being involved in gang activity. And then I think when we think about gangs from a US perspective, we think about like really localized like neighborhood or like people having certain turf. I would say that in a lot of places the gangs in these countries are have sort of taken the place of a government in that they are the ones who are surveilling people as they're coming in and out of their houses, as they're leaving communities. There are a lot of people who were threatened explicitly either to pay some kind of a protection racket or um, I've met a number of young women who uh, sort of gang members were like, you're going to be my girlfriend now. And there was this sort of really present active threat of sexual violence against them. And, you know, one of the first things that they ask you in an asylum application is like, did you go to the police? And when I ask people that, they tend to laugh because they're like, and do what? Like the police are also gang members. Like, no. (laughs) And then the other question is like, okay, well, did you try going somewhere else? Did you try just like leaving the situation? And I have talked to so many people who were like, well, I left my hometown. I went to go live with my aunt and, you know, tried to make a go of it there. Within three weeks, the gang had been notified that I had like changed addresses or like was in a new place because they have a really tight and like extensive surveillance network and people knew that I was there. So when you're when you're talking about people who are trying to immigrate, who are at the border and they're being questioned about whether or not they tried to leave the situation and so on and so forth. Is that what is called the credible fear interview? That is, I think, among the questions asked in the credible fear interview. The credible fear interview is like this very preliminary. In order to gain asylum, you have to prove that you are afraid of going back to your home country. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So absurd. Uh, And that that fear is credible. Um, Right. That you are afraid of going back to your home country because of a, you are afraid that like violence may occur to you. And it is theoretically violence either by the government or by an entity the government is unwilling or unable to stop. So gangs classify. And it has to be because of a certain protected characteristic you have. So things you aren't able to or shouldn't have to change. Things like your political party, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion, or what is called your belonging in a particular social group, which can be like, 
my social group is that I don't want to be in a gang. And this gang keeps very, very actively recruiting me and telling me that if I don't join, they will kill me. And so that's kind of the things that people are asked um, as part of their credible fear interview on the border. And it's it usually happens very early on. Sometimes it doesn't. Things are a little bit chaotic. But that's one of the very first steps. What, what's occurring to me is that like I should go become one of these people who interviews people for the credible fear because I'd find almost any fear articulated to me credible. Like, I mean, hey, I'm scared of starving to death. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, having, I'm having trouble feeding my family. Like, that's a credible fear to me. I don't understand... Like, what does it take for your fear to be deemed credible? You know, like, I, I don't know. And, and it, then it becomes like this, I, I can already hear like the the critics being like, well, people are dishonest and they're just trying to game the system. And it's like, they walked across a desert to get to this border or, you know what I'm saying? They walked hundreds and thousands of miles yeah. and at risk of life and limb to get to this border. And you think they're just there to pull a fast one on you? Like, you got to be kidding me, you know? So I don't know. It just, it feels very dystopian, this, this process. I'm sure you would agree. And, you know, the, the terminology that, you know, is embedded into these processes and is created by these functionaries, you know, government functionaries, it just makes my skin crawl. Credible fear interview, immigrating the right way, you know, all this kind of stuff yeah. that uh, drives me a little bit crazy. And, you know, in terms of just the, the bureaucracy of it and the way that it works at the border, you know, you kind of paint this picture of hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people who are at the border kind of waiting for their number to be called. And there is this thing called La Lista, the list. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk a little bit? You know, I think that this was actually news to me. This was one of the things that I loved about your book is that it made... <laughs> the actual process real to me. I think most American citizens have no idea how this stuff works. They see the crowds, they see like ice or, you know, border patrol on their horses or in their pickup trucks or whatever, but they don't know how the actual system works and you get into those details. So what is La Lista and what did you see on the ground in Tijuana where people were trying to kind of get permission to come over? Yeah, so I'm actually not totally sure if La Lista is something that is still happening. There's been so many changes in like border regulations and everything that it, I think it might have been replaced by uh, the CBP1 app more recently. But basically, wait, La what Lista is and, and is, what is the app? What is the, the it's like the app oh, that, Im that immigrants app, are supposed to use? Yeah, they're supposed to like make an appointment ahead of time and it uses like facial recognition, like Clearview stuff to sort of figure out who they are and get them appointments. But it's been malfunctioning an incredible amount. It doesn't very clearly recognize black people, especially it like will not the facial recognition software just kind of keeps being like, there's no face here. And so it's really discriminatory, really problematic in a lot of different ways. And so that's sort of the the system that is replaced to this one, I believe. But La Lista refers to this practice known as metering. And this first began during a surge of, I think, Haitian asylum seekers during the Obama administration. And it's basically this idea that like, okay, well, we don't have enough space or ability to process all these people. And so you guys need to like get in line and take a number. 
And so there is this kind of fiction that it is run and organized by the migrants themselves. And certainly it is migrants who are doing sort of all of the administrative labor around it. It's them who are sort of like keeping the list, who are writing people's names down, taking IDs, all of this stuff is run by migrants. But the actual sort of authority behind it is the U.S. government who will be like, yes, okay, we can take 10 people today. And so when you first get to Tijuana, you have to come in and you have to put your name down on the list. And so every morning in the plaza, the people come out with the notebook and you go up there and you stand in line and you give them your identity documents and they write your name down and then they give you a number. And then you wait for your number to be called like at the deli, except instead of at the deli, instead of it taking like a couple minutes, it will take days, weeks, sometimes months. I think while I was there in January of 2019, there were people who had gotten there in like late November, early December who were crossing. So they had spent a month, month and a half waiting. And when your number gets close, you need to start showing up at the plaza every day. And that can either be easy because you're staying nearby Um, There are a couple of migrant shelters in the area, or it can be very difficult because your shelter is a couple bus routes away, which costs money, which like you may or may not have a job. And so it really can make people's lives very difficult deciding uh, whether they should start going to the plaza or not to wait for their number to be called. And then once your number is called, you are sort of taken to stand in line in a separate place and then you are loaded up onto these vans and driven 10 minutes down the road to cross at a nearby sort of point of entry and then from there different things happen to different people some people are released right away other people stay in detention for a while other people are flown to detention centers across the country it really just kind of depends on what the mood is that day. I really don't know what affects whether someone is able to stay uh, nearby or not or get released or not. And so if you miss your number, tough luck. Try again next time. You have to get back in line, give them your card again, go through the whole hullabaloo. And so it's this very like bureaucratic like wait in line at the DMV kind of thing except it's everyone with every single one of their earthly possessions waiting around in this in this open air plaza there were days that it was raining and really miserable out there are days not in January while I was there but I'm sure when it's like a hundred degrees out and super hot and everyone just has to kind of stand around the word that comes to the word that comes to mind is inhuman you know it's like you can call it bureaucratic you can call it uh any number of things, but it's so inhuman. And not only do people have all of their earthly possessions, not only are they being asked to wait an interminable amount of time in, you know, weather and heat and all the rest, but they are also often traumatized. And the stakes for these people, I think in particular of this guy that you saw in Tijuana who was having a panic attack in line, one of the more moving parts of the book for me was just thinking about this guy for whom everything hangs in the balance. He's trying to get to the States uh, for asylum and for a better life. If he gets sent back to where he's from in El Salvador or whatever it is, he's basically a dead man. 
you know, that's, I think, the, I think that's the stakes for him, or it could be the stakes for any number of people there. Mm-hmm. But to make somebody who is waiting with that kind of internal tension for, to make them wait for months, <laughs> I mean, yeah. just inhuman. And there's got to be a better way. It, uh, it is infuriating to ponder. And I'm sure it was yeah. infuriating to witness. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also like, Tijuana in itself is very dangerous. There's all kinds of people there who are trying to take advantage of people. You know, there have been known scams of people being like, oh, if you give me a thousand bucks, I can move your name up on the list so you get called tomorrow. Like there's all all kinds of things like that sort of waiting for people. So it's not just, you know, hanging out in your house for a couple months, like I don't know, waiting for a surgery or something else that could be really stressful and, and scary on its own. But you're also where waiting in these like very actively hostile conditions and it's horrifying. Well, there's so much ground that this book covers. It's impossible for, you know, for us to get to every bit of it, but in a kind of like, like briefly, it's important to note that you address the issue of uh, queer immigrants and the additional difficulties and traumas that they often face trying to make it through. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag in some ways because I feel like LGBTQ um, people seeking asylum, I think you said, have a higher rate of admission. Like the, their credible fear, their fear seems more credible or something, right? It's like uh, easier statistically anyway for them to be admitted, but along the way and within even their own communities, there can be ostracism and there can be you know, prejudices at work and threats that, that they have to deal with that others do not. Yeah, I was in Tijuana when parts, at least, of the the queer caravan that came up with the the sort of bigger caravan were starting to cross, and they were, you know, preparing to cross in very different ways than than non queer migrants were, or than less visibly queer migrants were. There was a lot more sort of like, okay, I need to make sure that my my gender presentation does not read as any particular way right now I need to try to do my best to like fit in you know I saw girls wiping makeup off and taking wigs off and there's a lot of this I've also gotten to meet a number of incredible women sort of on the other side of this experience once they've gotten asylum and talking about the different sort of detention situations that they face um there was a while where the united states had a it was a so-called trans pod that held uh all trans women who were um in the process of seeking asylum often for incredibly long periods of time women who were not in the trans pod trans women who are not in the trans pod are often held in solitary confinement for quote unquote their own protection although solitary confinement is incredibly harmful to people's mental and physical health and there are all of these sort of different factors that go into into how trans detention and trans immigration particularly is incredibly challenging and incredibly dangerous for folks. And I unfortunately think that that's only going to get more and more difficult as more and more states start passing anti-trans legislation and as we start becoming a more hostile state to trans people in general. Well, in addition to uh, those issues, you also do uh, a good job of portraying the horrid 
conditions of migrant shelters, migrant detention centers in particular, the overcrowding, the horrible food infested with bugs and rats. And I mean, like just inhuman, it is inhuman. And it's some, it's also something that is purposefully hidden from the average American citizen. Incredibly difficult for journalists to access these detention centers. We've sort of seen the footage, right, of these tours and everybody's got their aluminum, what do you call those blankets? Foil blankets and, you know, yeah. the chain link. But it's like, it's clean. It's kind of the sanitized version, even as, as horrible as that is. But like the, the actual reality at a lot of these out of the way detention centers is a level of human misery that just simply should not exist anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So there are two kinds of detention center. There is border detention centers, which are called Yeleras ice boxes or Perreras kennels by the people staying in them, not necessarily by authorities. Uh Um, And those are meant as uh, short term places for people to be. You're theoretically only held there for 72 hours at most. That is often not true. It's supposed to be just like the place where you do the border processing. And so since a lot of people in those are picked up directly from sort of trying to cross the desert or from like really extreme weather situations, those are often the folks you'll see wearing the blankets and they're kind of just in these sort of like chain link fenced out rooms in a sort of a warehouse looking places, probably how I describe a lot of them. Those places are incredibly dangerous for folks Even just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a young girl died there after experiencing incredible medical neglect. She had a 104 degree fever and her mother kept calling for an ambulance and they just ignored her and she, she passed away. She was eight. And just about everyone stays in those for at least a little bit. And the food there is awful. There's like a lot of awful jokes about like the Goya bean burritos that they hang out hand out that are supposedly awful and then there is sort of ice detention which happens at private prisons and also like your local county jail often and those are for folks who are also still being processed but can't be held at the border anymore but it can also be for like your guy who's been in the country for 10 years and got caught with a joint in his pocket or someone who got caught shoplifting, which can be a deportable offense. Fun fact. And so those detention centers, which are the ones that I toured in the book, are much more much more like what we would think of as prison. There's like dorms, there's cells, there's different sort of classifications of folks into low risk, high risk, but it's still prison and often either for things for people who like did not commit crimes or for people who committed very low level crimes or for people who have committed crimes have already been to regular prison and then immediately got picked up again and put into immigration prison which happens a lot of times and people end up I've known people who spent longer in immigration detention than in prison for uh, serving out their sentence. It's absolutely absurd. And so the book goes into sort of the landscape of that 
of that prison and how horrifying it is and how inhumane it is for anyone, much less people who have not committed crimes or done anything other than try and get a better life for themselves. So you say in the book, I'm going to quote you again, you say, even now, having seen it, I can't finish fitting it in my head that this exists, that there's a giant engine just dedicated to the regular and steady dehumanization of people for no other reason than the sheer authoritarian bureaucratic pleasure of it. That's pretty. That's a pretty harsh condemnation of uh, America's political class and kind of government functionary class. Yeah, I mean, there is very little to no reason that people can't be in their communities. Many people are going to meet family members that are already here. Many people are have plans and goals and dreams that they are like ready to hit the ground running with and. There's no reason to incarcerate people, especially not for nearly as long as we do. And it often feels like our detention system is part of this sort of what they call prevention through deterrence, which is another one of these horrible bureaucratic terms that you were pointing out, which is basically, let's make it so hard and so dangerous and so traumatizing for people to come over that hopefully they'll stop coming and like this is a policy that's been in place since the 90s we know very plainly that it doesn't work and yet it's still something that we are relying on constantly to sort of quote-unquote control our immigration numbers when so actually basically what we're doing is torturing people yes <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's it right it's like let's brutalize them and hopefully like learn them a lesson it's such a yeah backwards way of thinking and behaving. You say, I mean, it's a complicated issue, obviously, which to which this book readily attests. And there are no easy answers, but you do posit. And I think as a reader, you're always hungry as a human being, you know, if you're, if you're not like a totally heartless (laughs) asshole, you know, like you're like, how how do we fix this? You know, that's the question that comes to mind, right? Like, how do we fix this? So, you know, certainly it came to mind for you, uh, and has been on your mind for a long time. And I think the the way, the thing that you get to is you fix it the way that you built it, law by law, misconception by misconception, life by life. And I'm on board with that. I think that it, you have to point out that it's not going to be, there's no quick fix, right? Like it's yeah. just, it's going to be that grind and it's going to take people like yourself like me, like whoever's listening, like people have to get involved. You have to engage and we have to reach a critical mass of people who want this to be better. And, you know, just as a, a point of personal confusion, cause I'm not settled in my thinking on this mm-hmm. about like, you know, I have friends who are like, there should be no border. Like yeah. borders, borders are like, you know, just sort of like there should be no police like there, but we have to abolish the police. And I hear these things and I'm like, well, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge that the border is fucked up and that, you know, there's systemic racism in policing and that policing needs a lot of work. But I got to be honest, I'm not sure. Like, like, how do you, how does society work without any law enforcement? Is there any society on earth that, that exists without law enforcement? Is there any country that yeah. could exist without a border? I know it's an imaginary thing that we all sort of agree upon, but there are lots of things like that. So 
I don't have, I don't have like settled thinking on that. Do you? <laughs> uh, not really. I mean, like I have some ideas of what I would like to see and what a better world would look like. But I think that the important thing at this stage, which is also kind of what we're seeing with the police abolition movement, and I write about this a little bit, we know policing does not necessarily work. Like, we know that if you call the cops, sometimes they show up, sometimes they don't. We know that sometimes they will help you, sometimes they don't. Sometimes if someone steals your stuff, they'll be like, well, it looks like your stuff got stolen, and that's it. We know that the border also doesn't work. We know that people are dying because of it, just like we know that people die because of the police all the time. I think the thing that the police abolition movement has been extraordinarily successful in advocating for over the last couple of years is being like, hey, this is a problem. We have had the system for years and years and years, and we know that it doesn't work. It is not working for anyone. It is especially not working for Black people, but it is not working for anyone. Help us imagine something better. And that is the work that I hope this book does on a policy level is to be like, hey, this is not working. I can imagine better things. I am also not like a policy genius. And I think that we need we need more attention on the fact that it doesn't work. We know that this doesn't work and we need more like it's a time for imagination. It's a time for imagining a better world. It is a time for imagining better systems. And I think that the work that we can start doing is rolling back these laws, especially the ones that have been passed in the last few years. And we've seen what a struggle that's been even with Title 42, which is this pandemic law that sort of closed the border against everyone, uh, except for certain exceptions along the way at different points. But rolling that back was a huge political mess. And it was rolled back, but replaced by something just as bad or worse. And so I think that the work that lies ahead of us, we don't have to know exactly where we're going to at least start doing the work. I think that we can start imagining a better future and working towards that without knowing exactly what those details are. Because Lord knows we've created a pretty bad one without having a direct goal in mind. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't even get to all the different ways that American foreign intervention and capitalist intervention in countries in, for example, Central America leads to conditions on the ground in Central America that cause people to be traumatized and impoverished and to leave these places to go to America. So like we're creating, uh, in, in large part, the immigrants yeah. who want to come here, who we then torture at the border. Like we didn't even get into all that. It's a big issue, you know, but you talked about United Fruit Company, talked about the ways in which the United States government and its foreign intelligence services have through the years propped up politicians who are maybe amenable to American business interests, but who don't have the best interests of their own people in mind. You know, it's like, it's a big mess on that level as well. And it is very easy, as I'm sure listeners can detect to feel overwhelmed in trying to grapple with something so big and so entrenched and so multifaceted. But here again, your book makes an effort to try to come to some sort of understanding and actionable conclusion when it comes to such feelings. And I think that the 
person who's writing you reference at this stage of the book is Simone Weil. Am I pronouncing that last name right? Is it Weil? Um, I have heard it a lot of different ways. I have heard Weil. I have heard Weil. I've also heard Vey, which is how I tend to pronounce it, but I don't know if that's right. Okay. Well, we'll just, all of the above. But there's an yes. essay that you reference by Simone, which talks about paying careful attention. Like, what is the way to do this work? What is the way to cope with feelings of overwhelm? or to feelings of hopelessness and despair and this sense of like, there's nothing I could do. You know, there's all these different feelings that can swirl around within a person who is trying to engage with this stuff, either directly or even just intellectually. And what she talks about is paying careful attention, like the act of paying careful attention to even the smallest of tasks, to the labor of helping without any expectation or desire for uh, thanks or any kind of personal recognition, you know what I'm saying? Just selfless labor, yeah. as much as one can be selfless, and to the work of simply bearing witness, to paying careful attention. This feels recognizable to me as a spiritual activity and a simple activity conceptually but a very difficult activity in practice. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it makes it makes sense. I mean, I, I nodded my head at that conclusion. Like, what else is there in the end? You know, if you're feeling overwhelmed or you're trying to figure out in a North Star kind of way how to approach this stuff and this work. Yeah, absolutely. That essay is about praying and figure out, figuring out how to be good at praying and sort of sitting down every day to talk to God with no expectation that God will talk back, which is also a feeling I'm very familiar with. <laughs> and just kind of you you sit down and you do it and you pay attention to it anyway. And before long, you notice that the person next to you is also paying attention. And that feels like a way that God is talking to you. And you you just sort of, you keep doing the work because that's the work that needs to get done. And yeah, that's felt like the one thing that sort of keeps my head on straight, even when I am like, I do not want to format a blog post today. The world is on fire and I don't know what formatting a blog post will do for anyone. And, you know, the answer is like, it's going to reach someone. Someone's going to learn something from reading this blog post and it might be the right person to make a difference. And like in the end, all you can do is the work that's in front of you and the work that you've been given to do and figure out ways to connect that work to the work that other people are doing and figure out ways to be in conversation with people who are doing the same work or similar work or work that feels like it touches on yours. And that feels like the ultimate thing that I really want people to get out of the book is like, you should do the work that's there for you to do. And that's not always going to look cool or fancy or like be social mediable. A huge amount of social progress is made by like fiddling around with spreadsheets and like coordinating drop offs. Right. But it's still work and it's work that somebody's got to do. And that's it's important work. And yeah. So paying attention to those like unsexy 
tasks if they are handed to you and doing that work, you know, whatever small little impact, you know, we, that makes a lot of sense to me. Another aspect of this issue of attention that makes sense to me, and I don't mean to sound uh, cheesy here, but like, you know, loving and caring for other human beings, like careful attention is the foundation of it, as I understand it. Like to love somebody is to be there for them and preferably in like an unjudgmental, you know, way uh, and yeah. to just kind of show up to not be like on your phone while they're, you know, pouring their heart out to you, like in whatever context, you know, attention, you know, yeah. recognizing that someone else is in the room with you or sitting across the table from you. That can matter so much to anybody. It matters hugely to all of us, right? We all need that kind of attention. But to do that in particular for people who have walked 2,000 miles or whatever it is to get to the border, who have the clothes on their backs and not much else, who are fleeing incredible danger or grappling with physical or sexual trauma of some kind or another, huge. Even if it is not acknowledged in the moment, even if you can't really see the impacts of it in their behavior or in their circumstances, it just occurs to me like how important it is to have people there who are not these sort of like dead-eyed government bureaucrats who don't give a shit uh, or worse. Like to have people like you there who actually have uh, a real interest in the humanity of these people. I can't imagine anything more important, like as I try to imagine myself in those circumstances than to have somebody actually see me as a person. Yeah. And it's, it's something that is both like challenging to cultivate and also very easy because like, what else are you going to do with someone in front of you who is having a hard time than to like sit and listen and look them in the eye. And I will say that I think that the way that I have engaged with people that I talk about in the book makes that quite easy because I'm not usually seeing people over and over again. So I hear their story one time and then I write it down and I say, okay, good luck at court, like really good luck at court. And that can be more challenging as you form longer relationships, as you get to know people better, but it still is just like the heart of, I think, any kind of direct service work. So having done all of this work, having undertaken the labor of writing this book and really slowing down and investigating this subject matter, both broadly and personally. Uh, I can't help but wonder where you are spiritually, since you're a divinity school graduate and somebody for whom this kind of stuff is important. Like to have witnessed all of this, to have like seen it with your own eyes and to have had to try to make some sense of it has to have an impact on that part of you, no? Like, how has it affected your sort of spiritual understanding of people and like our, you know, life in general? Like, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I write in the book a lot about being mad at God, which feels just. <laughs> and I think that now, you know, a couple of years out from a lot of the most traumatic stuff. I'm someone who still has like a very like wishy-washy relationship with like organized faith and stuff, but I I'm pretty sure that I believe in like 
God to whatever sense, also like the ways that I was raised Christian, I have come to realize are like deeply imprinted on my brain in ways that I like can't really shake. Like they're there, they're up there, they're stuck. It's fine. Um, <laughs> and the way that I think about God or the way that I think about faith now is a lot more focused on my relationships with other people, I think, and and building those up and making those strong and sustainable and and capable of of giving giving to other people beyond just like the one-way relationship with another person. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's like what I think what I'm hearing is that it's less about maybe the mythology of it or even the uh, like the dogma. It's more about like trying to put into practice with the people in your lived existence the best and deepest lessons that exist within those traditions or the tradition that you're from. Yeah. Yes? Something like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that. And I appreciate all of your honest grappling in this book and for sort of opening my eyes to a lot of things that I did not previously know or understand at any level of depth. It is a huge problem. I hope that we can get our political class to take action. I think the optimist in me feels like if there are strong enough majorities on the left, something better would happen. But I feel like it's a hot button issue. I don't know if you, you I can, are yeah. you chuckling? Are you like, no way? <laughs> I don't know if I, I'm being. <laughs> I don't, I really, I waffle on this all the time. I feel like so much of what has happened has happened without any, like even right now, like with the Biden administration, every, like all of the stuff that has gone down post title 42 feels like it went down like with only right-wing political will in mind and with the same kind of like weak-handed sort of like oh we'll just compromise don't worry that we've seen since then and it's just like that's kind of where I'm at right now like yeah. so much of this is not acts of congress it's all like executive orders and things that like nobody has actually voted on it's just like all sort of happening and so it feels like it exists in this plane, like outside of so much political will. Yeah. And well, I feel like, I mean, this is like, I, you know, I'm trying to parse it in my head. So this isn't necessarily my opinion. It's just me trying to understand the mechanics of it. Maybe believing in people's better angels more than I should, especially politicians, better angels. But it feels to me like, you know, they, Democrats don't have the House right now. The Republicans do. They've got a, a, an election coming up in 24. I feel like these political people, they look at these issues and they say, well, is this a winning issue for us, especially in swing states? And what's the calculation? If we bring this up and we foreground this and we take a really strong stand on it, is it going to hurt our chances to win? In which case, the lesser angels take over and the system definitely gets worse and not better and the bad policies get more and more entrenched. But if we're yeah. quiet on it and we win bigger majorities, then we can do something meaningful because we can't do it in the absence of a vote. And like 
that's always the case. It's not just this issue, right? I mean, this is the sort of like mental gymnastics that I go through on anything. It's like, oh, so they're trying to keep quiet because strategically, if they foregrounded it, it would actually hurt them in the big picture. And, you know, maybe that's true, but it also could be just a shitty rationale for stasis and inaction. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, many, many, many immigrants can't vote. And that is certainly not not a part of this. And it like it doesn't feel like a, a political priority except to score points against the right or to be like, well, we're going to be more humane. And then like that either happens or doesn't. It also feels to me, speaking to somebody who is a Divinity School graduate, like this is something about the issue politically that has always frustrated me is it is the most it is the most unchristian thing in the world to turn your back on immigrants and to dehumanize them in the ways that we dehumanize people at the border so routinely. And yet, (laughs) uh, so many Christian citizens in the United States vote in a way that perpetuates these systems. I mean, I guess these systems exist across the political spectrum. You know, it's not just the fault of one political party, but I think you know what I'm getting at. I feel like the the right-wing nativist position is often embraced and perpetuated by people who are also like very openly and loudly Christian. And there is a disconnect in logic there that is hard to accept. Yeah. I mean, the, the connections between sort of the, the right-wing political movement and Christianity are long and deep and like based on anti-blackness and when you think about the ways and places that that is sort of where this movement began it makes a little more sense but it is it is that kind of rhetoric that took me away from the church to begin with when I was a kid and it was in finding the opposite of that that I started moving back towards the church. And so it's something that I have like a lot of personal stake in or, or feelings about. And it's not, and I should say too, it's not just, I think it's it, a lot of it is rooted, as you say, in anti black sentiment, but I, you know, not to get tedious about it, but it's also anti brown. <laughs> like it doesn't, like people of color in general, I think, yeah. you know, there, are, and, and you mentioned this in the book, there are quote unquote desirable immigrants, you know, like I want to say Trump at some point was talking about how he wanted more immigrants from Sweden. Like, well, go figure, you know, like, yeah, wonder, wonder why that's the case. And I think for all of the difficulty that it, it causes you as somebody who was raised in this tradition and has a lot of questions and doubt and problems with it, something I've feel inspired by and good about is the fact that you are coming at this from a different angle. Like, I think we need a Christian left <laughs> that is more like, what would Jesus do with immigrants? Surely he would not put them in these detention centers and force them to walk through the desert in 120 degree heat and steal the water bottles that volunteers have left out there for them. Can't imagine that's what Jesus would do, you know? Yeah. And so- I mean, there is a Christian left. It's just quiet. But like, um, and you're being loud is the point. I think like it's good that you're speaking. It's good that you're speaking up. That's what I think we need more of. And it, you know, yeah, I don't know. 
like I was raised Catholic. I've, you know, it, it never took. So I was kind of out of it from the time I was a young kid, but I have a, I yeah. have a priest uncle. I have several aunts who were nuns, but my family's from the South. So like, I get it. And it's still, it's still embedded somewhere in me. And I think that there's a good case to be made that these traditions and the people within them can be and should be reimagined in places where they are failing. And I think that's part of the vital work that this book is doing. It's doing so much. And this is such a, like I, like I've been saying, such a complex and multifaceted issue <laughs> that I feel like I could talk to you for like another two hours and we still probably wouldn't get to everything. So I will let readers discover the book and read it. And I always ask at the end of my conversations, if you are working on anything else, it is fine if you are not, but usually writers have at least some kind of iron in the fire. Like now with this one done, is there like an, uh, you know, other work to be done in a literary sense on this subject matter, or are you moving on to other things? So I'm at the like, read everything I can get my hands on, not necessarily writing stage, but a thing that has been pulling my interest of late is thinking about food a little more deeply. I touch on it a little bit in Rivermouth, but I didn't necessarily have the space to in Rivermouth, or I wasn't really sure how to finish talking about. And so I want to spend a little bit more time thinking and reading about that. But that's sort of like very vaguely the area that I am going in food. <laughs> yeah, I think that yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense having read Rivermouth that that could be a path to take because it is so integral to these issues. And I will look forward to it. So I really appreciate the work that you've done and the time that you've given me uh, to discuss this. And I wish you well on whatever comes next. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Alejandra Oliva. Her new book is called Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration, out this week on Astra House. You can find Alejandra on the internet. Her website is olivealejandra.com. It's a little bit tricky. Her last name begins with the first letter of her first name, so she sort of blended it together. olivealejandra.com. Does that make sense? You can Google it. You'll figure it out. You can also find her on Instagram and Twitter. Her handle in both places is, I believe, at olivealejandra. Again, the book is called Rivermouth, available on Astra House. Go get your copy right away. If you had a good experience, if you enjoy this program, please know that I would deeply appreciate your kind support. Help me keep making this program. Support the work that I do over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to get an other people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my free once a week email newsletter, you can do that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating. If it's possible to write a review, write a little review. It helps new listeners find the show. Subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. You can watch my conversation with Alejandro Oliva and follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're interested in advertising on this program, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com, and look for the media kit. You can find the information that you need right there. If you have feedback for me, if you would like to share your thoughts, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, I have a novel out. My latest novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. 
You can read it in trade paperback or ebook formats. If you would like me to read it to you, I can do that. I'm the narrator of the audiobook, so get the audiobook and you can hear me narrate my own book. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So, coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with Leila Slimani, the international best-selling author of several books, including The Perfect Nanny, which you may recall, it won the Goncourt Prize, the highest literary honor in France back in, I believe, 2016. And Leila Slimani has a new novel out. It's publishing in North America this week, I believe. It is called Watch Us Dance. And it is the second in a trilogy that she is writing about her native country of Morocco and her family history there. So I had a great conversation with Leila Slimani. That is coming up on Wednesday. So stay tuned.